0: Section 45 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1 Section 45 Roman Britain by F.J. Haverfield The character and history of Roman Britain, as of many other Roman provinces, were predominantly determined by the facts of its geography. To that cause, or set of causes, more than to any other, we must attribute alike the Roman desire to conquer the province and the actual stages of the conquest distribution of the troops employed as permanent garrison quality and extent of the romanized civilization and lastly a great part of the long series of incidents by which the island was lost to rome and roman culture geologically britain forms the northwest side of a huge valley which had its south-east side in northern and central france down the centre of this valley ran two rivers, the one flowing south west along a bed now covered by the English Channel, the other flowing northeast for a region now beneath the German ocean. From these rivers the land sloped upwards south east to Vosges, Alps, and north northwest to Cornwall, Wales and northern Britain. The two rivers have long vanished. But the configuration of their valleys has lasted. Though unquiet seas now divide England from northwestern Europe, the two areas that are once the two sides of the valleys still look to each other. Their lowlands lie opposite, their main rivers flow out into the intervening sea, their easiest entrances face each area, lies open by nature to the trade or the brute force of the other each has its most fertile, most habitable, and least defensible districts next to those of the other. Hence comes the peculiar configuration of our island. In southeast Britain, there is little continuous hill country that rises above the 600-foot contour line. Instead, wide undulating lowlands, marked by no striking physical feature, containing little to arrest or even divert the march of ancient armies, or traders, stretch over all the south and east and midlands. The hills we must go north of Trent and Humber, or west of Severn and X. There we shall find almost the converse of the southeast. Throughout a large scattered region, extending from Cornwall to the highlands, the land lies mostly above, and much of its high above the 600-foot line. Its soil and climate are ill-suited to agriculture. Its deep valleys and gorges and wild moors and high peaks oppose alike the soldier and a citizen. Behind this upland lies the Atlantic, and an Atlantic which meant of old reverse of what it does today. To the ancients this hell country was the end of the world, For us, since Columbus, it is the beginning. These physical features are reproduced plainly in the early history of Britain. It was natural that about B.C. 50 to A.D. 50, southern Britain should be occupied by Celtic tribes, and even families which had close kindred in Gaul, and that a lively intercourse should exist between the two. It was no less natural that even before Rome had fully conquered Gaul, Caesar's troops should be seen in Kent and Middlesex, BC 55 to 54. And Roman suzerainty extended over these regions, and when the annexation of Gaul was finally complete, that of Britain seemed the obvious sequel. The sequel was indeed delayed a while by political causes. Augustus. B.C. 43 to A.D. 14, had too much else to do. Tiberius, 14 to 37, saw no need for it, just as he saw no need for any wars of conquest. But after 37, it became urgent. Changes in southern Britain had favoured an anti-Roman reaction there, and had perhaps produced disquiet in northern Gaul. Caligula, 37 to 41, had made some fiasco in connection with it. When Claudius succeeded, there was need of vigorous action, and as it chanced, the leading statesman of the moment favoured a forward policy in many lands. The result was a well-planned and deservedly successful invasion, A.D. 43. The details of the ensuing war of conquest do not here concern us. It is enough to say that the lowlands offered little resistance. In one part of them, near the southeast coast, Roman ways had become familiar since Caesar's raids. In another part, the Midlands, the population was then, as now, thin. Nowhere, despite the furies of Guest and Green, were there physical obstacles likely to delay the Roman arms. By 47 the invaders subdued almost all the lowlands, as far west as Exeter and Shrewsbury, and as far north as the Humber. Then came a pause. The difficulties of the hill country, the bravery of the hill tribes, political circumstances at Rome, combined not indeed to arrest, but seriously to impede advance. But the decade 70 to 80 saw the final conquest of Wales, and a final subjugation of northern England, and in the years 80 to 84, Agricola was able to cross the Tyne and the Cheviots and gradually advance into Perthshire. Much of the land which he overran was but imperfectly subdued, and the northern part of it, everything, probably north of the Tweed, was abandoned when he was recalled, 85. Thirty years later, 11.5 to one twenty an insurrection shook the whole Roman power in Northern Britain, and when Hadrian had restored order, he established the frontier along a line from Tyne to Solway, which he fortified by forts and a continuous wall, about 122 to 124. Fifteen or twenty years later, about AD 140, his successor Pius, for reasons not properly recorded, made a fresh advance, annexed Scotland up to the narrow isthmus between Forth and Clyde, and fortified that of a continuous wall, a series of forts along it variously estimated at twelve, or more probably at eighteen or twenty, and some outposts along the natural route for the Gap of Stirling to the north-east. This wall was not meant as a substitute for Hadrian's Wall, but as a defence to the country north of it. Rome had now reached her furthest permanent north, but the advance was not long accepted quietly by the natives. Twenty years after Pius had built his wall, a storm broke loose through all northern Britain from Derbyshire to Cheviot, or beyond, about 158 to 160. A second storm followed twenty years later, about 183. The wall of Pius was then, or soon after, definitely lost, and disorder apparently continued until the emperor Septimus Servius came out in person two hundred eight to two hundred eleven, and rebuilt the wall of Hadrian to form with a few outlying forts to the Roman frontier. With this step ends the series of alternating organization revolt which make up the external history of the earlier Roman Britain. Henceforward, the war was the boundary until the coming of the barbarians who ended Roman rule in the island. The force which garrisoned this fluctuating frontier and kept the province quiet consisted of three, until AD 85, of four, legions, and an uncertain number of troops of the second grade, the so-called auxilia in all, perhaps in 35 to 40,000 men, mostly heavy infantry. Three legions were disposed in three fortresses. Lisca Silurium, Carleon on Usk, Legia Il Augusta, Deva, Chester, Ligo, Valeria Victrix, and Iberquium, York, Ligio, five Vi Victrix. From these centuries detachments, vexillians, were sent out to form expeditionary forces to construct fortifications and other military works, and generally to meet important but occasional needs. Outside these three main fortresses, the province was kept quiet and safe by a network of small forts, Castella, varying in size in two or three to six or seven acres, and garrisoned by auxiliary cohorts, infantry, or allais, cavalry, some five hundred and some one thousand strong. These forts were planted along important roads and at strategic points, 10 or 15 or 20 miles apart. Their distribution is noteworthy. In the Lowlands there were none. During the early years of the Conquest, we can indeed trace garrisons at one or two places, such as Sirencester. But as the Conquest advanced, it was seen that the Lowlands needed no force to ensure their peace. And the troops were pushed on into the hills beyond Severn and Trent. Eighteen or twenty forts were dotted about Wales, though many of these seem to have been abandoned in the course of the second century, as having become superfluous through the growing pacification of the land. A much larger number can be detected in Derbyshire, Lancashire, the hill country of Yorkshire, or northward as far as Cheviot. Adrian's war in particular was principally defended by a series of such forts. We cannot, however, give precise statistics of these forts until exploration has advanced further. It is doubtful not only how far the known examples provide us with a fairly full list of them, but still more to what extent all the forts were in occupation at the same time, and to what extent one succeeded another. The troops which garrisoned these military posts were Roman in the sense that they not only obeyed the Roman Emperor but were in theory and to a great extent in practice even in the latter days of Roman Britain recruited within the U Empire. The legionnaires came from Romanized districts in the Western Empire. The auxiliaries, naturally less civilised to begin with but drilled into Roman ways and speech, were largely drawn from the Rhine and its neighbourhood. Some probably were Celts, like the native Britons. Others, as their names on tombstones and altars prove, were Teutonic in race. To what extent Britons were enrolled to garrison Britain is not very clear. Certainly, the statement that British recruits were always sent to the continent, chiefly to Germany, by way of precaution, seems on our present evidence to be less sweepingly true than was formerly supposed. From the standpoints alike of the ancient Roman statesman and of the modern Roman historian, the military posts and their garrisons formed the dominant element in Britain, but they have left little permanent mark on the civilization and character of the island. The ruins of their forts and fortresses are on our hillsides, but Roman as they were, their garrisons did little to spread Roman culture here. Outside their walls, each of them had a small or large settlement of women folk, traders, perhaps also of time-expired soldiers wishful to end their days where they had served. But hardly any of these settlements grew up into towns. York may form an exception, see below. It is a pure coincidence, due to causes far more recent than the Roman Age, that Newcastle, Manchester and Cardiff stand on sites once occupied by Roman auxiliary forts, nor do the garrisons appear to have greatly affected the racial character of the Romeo-British population. Even in times of peace, the average annual discharge of time-expired men, with land grants or bounties, cannot have greatly exceeded 1,000. And as we have seen, times of peace were rare in Britain. Of these discharged soldiers, by no means all settled in Britain, and some of them may have been of Celtic or even of British birth. Whatever German or other foreign elements passed into the population through the army cannot have been greater than that population could easily and naturally absorb without being seriously affected by them. The true contribution which the army made to Romeo Bridges' civilization whilst the disupland forts and fortresses formed a sheltering wall round the peaceful interior regions. Behind these formidable garrisons kept safe from barbarian inroads and in easy contact with the Roman Empire, by short sea passages, through to near Sandwich in Kent, to Boulogne, or from Colchester to the Rhine, stretched the lowlands of southern midland, and eastern Britain, Here, Roman culture spread and something approximating to real Romanization took place. The process began properly before the Claudian invasion of 43. The native British coinage of the Southeastern tribes and other indications suggest that in the 100 years between Julius Caesar and Claudius, Roman ways and perhaps even Roman speech had found admission to the shores of Britain. And this infiltration as I have said, may have made easier the ultimate conquest. After the conquest the process continued in two ways. In part it was definitely aided by the government which established here, as in other provinces, municipalities peopled by Roman citizens, for the most part discharged legionnaires, and known as colonnets. These, however, were comparatively few in Britain. Far greater was the automatic movement. Italians flocked to the newly opened regions, traders, as it seems, rather than the labourers who form the immigrants from Italy today. How numerous they were, we can hardly tell, but such commercial emigrations are always more important commercially than for their mere numbers. Certainly a far more notable movement was the automatic acceptance of Roman civilization by the British natives. We can to some extent trace this movement. Quite early in the period AD forty three to eighty, the British town Ferulium, just outside St. Albans in Hertfordshire, was judged to have become sufficiently Romanized to merit the municipal status and title of municipium practically equivalent to that of the Colonnenae, manned by veteran soldiers. The Great Revolt of Boudicca, less correctly called Bodicea in AD 60, was directed not only against the supremacy of Rome, but also against the spread of Roman civilization, and one incident in it was the massacre of many thousands of loyal natives along with actual Romans. Romanization, it is plain, had been spreading apace. Nor did this massacre check it for long. The Flavian period, AD 70 to 96, saw in Britain, as indeed in other provinces, a serious development of Roman culture, in particular of Roman town life, the peculiar gift of Rome to her western provinces. In the decade AD 70 to 80, the Britons began, as Tacitus tells us, to speak Latin and to use Latin dress, the material fabric of Latin civilized life. Now towns sprang up, such as Silchester, Cavala, Atrobatum, and Caerwent, Venta, Silurum, laid out on the model approved by Roman town planners, furnished with public buildings, forum, basilica, etc., of Roman style and filled with houses which are Roman in their internal fittings baths, hypocausts, wall paintings, if not in ground plan. Now the baths of Bath Acone Sullus were equipped with civilized buildings suited to their new visitors. The earliest datable monument there belongs to about seventy seven. Two colonai also were planted. Hitherto there had only been one. Established by Claudius at Colchester, Camulodunum. Now one was added at Lincoln, Lindum, and in 96 a third at Gloucester, Glevum. A new civil judge, Legatus Iridicus, began to make his appearance beside the regular Legatus Augusti pro Praetor, who was at once commander of the troops and judge of the chief court and governor of the province and the appointment is doubtless due to increasing civil business in the law courts. When Tacitus praises Agricola because he encouraged the provincials to adopt Roman culture, he praises him for following the tendency of his age, not for striking out any novel line of his own. It is probable that by the end of the 1st century, Roman civilization was laying firm hold on all the British lowlands. Subsequent progress was slower, or at least less showy. Little advance was made beyond the lowlands. Towns and villas were rare west of the Severn. Save in the Vale of York, they were equally rare north of the Trent. The uplands remained comparatively unaffected. Their population, as recent excavations in Cumberland and in Anglesey have shown, used Roman objects and came to some extent within range of Roman culture, but it seems impossible to speak of them as fully civilized, even if in the later years of the Roman occupation they did not remain wholly barbarian. In the Lowlands we may ascribe to the 2nd and 3rd centuries the development of the rural system and the building of farmhouses and country residences constructed in Roman fashion. It is very difficult to date these houses, but the evidence of coin seemed to show that the end of the third and the first half of the fourth century were the periods when they were most numerous and most fully occupied, when, as we may fairly argue, the countryside of Roman Britain was most fully permeated with Roman culture. For such a conclusion we shall have the support of a neighbouring parallel in Gaul. The administration of the civilised part of Britain while of course subject to the governor of the whole province, was it in fact entrusted to the local authorities. Each Roman, municiparian and colonia ruled itself, including a territory which might be as long and broad as a small English county. Some districts probably belonged to the imperial domains and were ruled by local agents of the emperor. Such, probably, were the lead mining districts as on Mendip, or in Derbyshire, or Flintshire. The remainder of the country, by far its largest part, was divided up, as before the Roman conquest, along the native cantoons or tribes, now organised in more or less Roman fashion. Each tribe had its council, order, and tribal magistrates, and its capital where the tribal council met. Thus the tribe, or canton, of the Solis, the Sivartus Salucrium, as it learnt to call itself, had its capital at Venter, Salurium, carewent between Chepstow and Newport. There its council met, and director ordinus by decree of the council. Measures were taken for the government of the tribal area, which probably covered much of Monmouthshire and some of Glamorgan. This we know, by epigraphic evidence, occurred at caerwent We shall not be rash in assuming on slighter evidence to the same system obtained in other tribal areas in Britain. It is just the system which Roman applied also to the local government of Gaul, north of the Cavennes. It illustrates well the Roman method of entrusting local government to a stricted reform of home rule. In the social fabric of Romeo-British life, the two chief elements were the town and the country house or villa. Both are mainly Roman importations. The counts do not appear to have reached any definite urban life, either in Gaul or in Britain, before the coming of the Romans, though they no doubt had, even in Britain, agglomerations of houses which came near to being towns. But with the Roman conquest, a real town life arose. In part, this was directly created by the government, under the Roman forms of municiparian and colonia, noticed above. Colchester, Camulodorum, Lincoln, Lindum, Gloucester, Gleatham, York, Ebregium or colonae. The first three were founded in the third century by drafts of time-expired soldiers, and the fourth, York, probably grew out of the civil settlement on the west bank of the Ouse, which confronted the legionary fortress under the present cathedral and its precincts. One town, Verilumium, St Albans, was a municiparium, ranking with the four coloni in privilege and standing, but different as explained above in origin. All these five towns attained considerable prosperity, in particular Camulodium, Epicarium and Verulamium. but none vie with the more splendid municipalities of other provinces. Besides them, Roman Britain could show a larger number, some ten or fifteen according to the standard adopted, of country towns which varied much in size, but possessed in their own way the essential features of urban life. The chief of these seemed to be the following. 1. Isurium Brigdantum, capital or chief lure of the Brigantes, now Aldborough, some twelve miles northwest of York, and the most northerly romano british town properly so called. 2. Reite, capital of the Coritane, now Leicester, 3. Variconum, so best spout, not Uriconum, capital of the Cornovii, now Roxeter, on the Severn, five miles below Shrewsbury. 4. Corinaemon, capital of the Dobone, now Cyrencester. 5. Venter, Silurium, already mentioned. Isca Dunmunnarukorium, capital of the Dumnonii, now Exeter. Junvera, capital of the Druates, now Dorchester in Dorsetshire eight Venter Belgarum Capital of the Belgae, now Winchester nine Cavalla Atrabatum capital of the Atrabartis close to Silcester ten Juvernum Cantacorium Capital of the Canti now Canterbury eleven. Venta, Icenorum, capital of the Iceni, now Castor by Norwich, and perhaps for the limits of the lists are not easily drawn with rigidity, Chesterford, Roman name unknown in Essex, Kenchester, Magna in Herefordshire, Chesterton, Drewbraythay on the Nen, Rochester, also Drewbraythay in Kent, even one or two which have perhaps less right to inclusion. Many of these towns are indicated by the Ravana Geographa as holding some special rank, and nearly all are declared by their remains to be the sites of really Romanised town life. What exactly their status of government was has yet to be defined, but it is fairly probable, especially from the Carewent movement erected by the Ordo. Sivivatus Solorum that the authorities of town and tribe were one. The general fashion of these towns has been revealed to us by excavations at Silchester and Caerwent. At Silchester, the whole 100 acres within the walls have been systematically uncovered during the last 20 years and the buildings studied with especial care. At Caerwent, a smaller area, 39 acres, has been excavated so far as the buildings of the present village permit. Both show much the same features, with certain differences in detail which are both natural and instructive. 1. Both have been planned according to the Roman method, which obtained in many parts of the Empire. That is, the streets run at right angles so as to form a chessboard pattern with square plots for the houses. At Silchester, where space was obviously abundant, the sanctity of the street frontages seemed to have been in general observed. At Caerwent, which is of smaller size and more thickly crowded with buildings, the street plan has suffered some encroachments, but not so much as to obliterate its character. Two. Both towns had near their centre the town buildings known as Forum and Basilica. At Silchester, where space was obviously abundant, the sanctity of the street frontages seemed to have been in general observed. At Carewent, which is of smaller size and more thickly crowded with buildings, the street plan has suffered some encroachments, but not so much as to obliterate its character. 2. Both towns had near their centre the town buildings known as Forum and Basilica, At Silchester, the Forum was a rectangular plot of two acres, with streets running along all its four sides. It contained a central open court, nearly 140 feet square, surrounded on three sides by corridors or cloisters with rooms, presumably shops and lounges opening into them. And the fourth side was a pillared hall, 270 by 58 feet in floor space decorated with Corinthian columns, marble-lined walls, statues and the like, and behind this hall a row of rooms which probably served as offices for the town authorities and the like. The Caerwent municipal buildings were very similar, so, as far as we can tell from imperfect signs, were those at Sirencester and Roxeter. They are indeed examples of a type which was represented in most large towns of the Western Empire, and in Italy itself. 3. Both towns had in addition small temples in different quarters within the walls, and at Silchester, a small building close to the Forum, is so similar in every detail to the early Christian church of the Western Basilian type that we can hardly hesitate to call it a church. 4. Both towns again seem to have had public baths. Those at Silchester covered an area of 80 by 160 feet in their earliest form, and in later times were much extended. Both again had more direct provision for amusements. At Silchester, an urban amphitheater stood outside the walls. At Caerwent, there are traces of the stone walls of one inside the ramparts. 5. Of dwelling houses and shops and the like, both towns have naturally no lack. The private houses are built like most of the private houses in the Celtic part of the Empire, in fashions very dissimilar from anything at Pompeii or Rome. but are fitted in Roman style, with mosaics, hypocasts, painted wall plaster and the like. They are especially noteworthy as being properly country houses. Brought together to form a town preforce, and not townhouses, such as could be used to compose regular rows or terraces or streets. Even the architecture thus declares that the town life of these cantonal chief Linux, though real, was incomplete. The civilization of the towns appears to have been of the Roman type. Not only do the buildings declare this, Inscriptions, and in particular casual scratchings on tiles or pots, which can often be assigned to the lower classes, prove that Latin was both read and written and spoken easily in Silchester and Caerwent. Whether Celtic was also known is uncertain. Here evidence is totally lacking. But it may be observed that if Celtic was understood, one would expect to meet it quite as much as Latin and casual graffiti, while the total disappearance of a native tongue can be paralleled in southern Gaul and southern Spain and is not incredible in towns. Nor do the smaller objects found at Silchester and Caerwent show much survival of the late Celtic art, which prevailed in Britain in the pre-Roman age, or which certainly survived here and there in the island. But while Romanized these towns are not large or rich. It has been calculated that Silchester did not contain more than 80 houses of decent size, and industries traceable there, in particular some dyers' furnaces, do not indicate wealth or capital. The Romano-British towns, it seems, were assimilated to Rome, but they were not powerful enough to carry their Roman culture through a barbarian conquest. Or impose it on their conquerors. From the town we pass to the country. This seems to have been divided up among estates commonly, though perhaps unscientifically, styled villas. Of the residences, etc., which form the buildings of these estates, many examples survive. Some are as large and luxurious as any Gaulish nobleman's residence on the other side of the channel. Others are small houses or even mere farms or cottages. It is difficult, on our present evidence, to deduce from these houses the agrarian system to which they belonged, save that it was plainly no mere slave system. But it is clear from the character of the residences, and remains in them, that they represent the same Romanized civilization as the towns, while a few chance graffiti suggests that Latin was used in some, at least, of them. A priori, it is not improbable that while the towns were Romanized, the countryside remained to some extent Celtic or bilingual. But all that is certain, as yet, is that scanty evidence proves some knowledge of Latin. These country houses are very irregularly distributed over the island. In some districts they abounded, included splendid mansions. Such districts are North Kent, West Sussex, parts of Hants, of Somerset, of Gloucestershire, of Lincolnshire. Other districts, notably the Midlands of Warwickshire or Buckinghamshire, contain very few villas, and indeed, as it seems, very few inhabitants at all. The Romans probably found these later districts thinly peopled, and they left them in the same condition. Besides country houses and farms, the countryside also contained occasional villages or hamlets inhabited, solely by peasants. Such have been excavated in Dorsetshire by the late General Pitt Rivers. These villages testify in their degree to the spread of Roman material civilization. However little their inhabitants understood of the higher aspects of Roman culture The objects found in them, pottery, brooches, etc., are much the same as those of the Romanized towns and villas, and are widely different from those of the Celtic villages, such as those lately excavated near Glastonbury, which belong to the latest pre-Roman age. The province was on the whole well provided with roads, some of them constructed for military purposes, some obviously connected with the various towns whether any of them follow lines laid out by the Britons before AD 43 is more than doubtful. In describing them we must put aside all notion of the famous Four Great Roads of Saxon times. That category of Four Roads was a medieval invention, probably dating from the 11th or 12th century antiquarius. The names of the roads composing it are Anglo-Saxon names some of which the inventors of the Four Roads plainly did not understand. If we examine the Roman roads actually known to us, we discern in the English Lowlands four main groups of roads radiating from the Natural Geographical Centre, London and a fifth group crossing England from north-east to south-west. The first ran from the Kentish ports and Canterbury through the populous North Kent to London. The second took the traveller west by Staines, Ponce, to Silchester, and thence by various branching roads to Winchester, Dorchester, Exeter, to Bath, to Gloucester and South Wales. The third, known to the English as Watling Street, crossed the Midlands, by Verulam to Wall near Lichfield, Lectocetum, Roxeter, Chester, Daver. And mid and north Wales. It also, by a branch from High Cross, Venone, gave access to Leicester and Lincoln. A fourth, running north east from London, led to Colchester and Caister by Norwich, and, as it seems, by a branch through Cambridge to Lincoln. The fifth group, unconnected with London, comprises two roads of importance. One, named Foss by the English, ran from Lincoln and Leicester by High Cross to Sirencester, Bath, and Exeter. Another, probably called Rhine Canal, the street by the English, ran from the north through Sheffield and Derby and Birmingham, of which Derby alone is a Roman site, to Cirencester, and in a fashion duplicated the Foss. There were also other roads such as Ackerman Street, which crossed the southern Midlands and near St. Albans by way of Alchester, near Bychester, the Sirencester and Bath, which must be considered as independent of the main scheme. But judged by the places they served and by the posts along them, the five groups above indicated seem the really important roads of southern or non military Roman Britain. The road systems of Wales and of the north were military and can best be understood from a map. In Wales, roads ran along the south and north coasts to Carmarthen and Carnarthen, while a road, San Helen, along the west coast connected the two. The interior roads, especially one up from the Severn from Roxeter and one down the Usk, connected the forts which guarded the valleys. These roads, however, need further exploration before they can be fully set out. In the north, three main routes are visible. One starting from the legionary fortress at York, ran north, with various branches to places in the lower Tyne, Corbridge, Newcastle, Ponds, Elelius, Shields. Another diverging at Catterick Bridge from the Thirst, ran over Stainmore to the Eden Valley and the Roman wall near Carlisle. A third starting from the legionary fortress at Chester, Dever passed north to the Lake Country and by various ramifications served all that is now Cumberland, Westmoreland and West-Northumberland. Several of these roads appear, as it were, in duplicate, leading from the same general starting point to the same general destination. And no doubt, if we knew enough, we should find that one of the two routes in question belonged to an older or a later age than the other. Communications with the continent seem to have been conducted chiefly between the Kentish ports and those of the opposite Gaulish littoral, in particular between Routepay, Fritchborough, just north of Sandwich, and of otherwise called Bonassina, now Boulogne, were also not in frequent intercourse between Colchester and the Rhine estuary to which we may ascribe various German products found in Roman Colchester, though not elsewhere in Roman Britain. On occasion men also reached or left the island by long sea passages. Troops, it appears, were sometimes shipped direct from Sveceto, Vetchen, near Utrecht, the port of the Rhine the mouth of the Tyne in Northumberland, while traders now and then sail direct from Gaul to Ireland and to British ports on the Irish Channel. The police of the seas was entrusted to a Classius Britannica, which intermittent references in our authorities show to have existed from the middle of the third century, that is from the original conquest or soon after, till at least the end of the third century. Despite its title the principal station of this fleet was not in Britain but at Boulogne and its work was the preservation of order on either coast of the Straits of Dover. This fleet appears to have been a police flotilla, rather than a naval force but for once it emerged into the political importance which fleets often assume. About 286 a i.e. probably Belgium by name, Caresius became commandment, possibly with extended powers to cope with increasing piracy. He set himself up as colleague to the two remaining emperors. Maximin and Dialyteum enlarged his fleet, allied himself with the sea robbers, in 289 actually extorted some kind of recognition at Rome but in 293 he was murdered, and his successor, Electus, was crushed by the Emperor Constantius Clorius in 296. Carusius was apparently an able man, but in his aims he differed little from many other pretenders to the throne, whom the later 3rd century produced. His object was not an independent Britain, but a share in the government of the Empire. His special significance is that he showed for the first time in history how a fleet might detach Britain from its geographical connection with the northwestern continent. Twelve centuries passed before this possibility was again realized. The preceding paragraphs have described the main features of Roman Britain, civil and military, during the main part of its existence. In the fourth century, change was plainly imminent. Barbarian sailors, Saxons and others began, as we have seen, rather earlier than 300, to issue from the other shores of the German Ocean and to vex the coasts of Gaul and probably also those of Britain. Carusius in 286 or 287 was sent to repress them. After his and his successor's deaths, some change, the nature of which is not yet quite clear, was made in the Classius Britannica, we now hear hardly anything more of it. A system of coast defence was established from the Wash to the Isle of Wight. It consisted of some nine forts, each planted on a harbour and garrisoned by a regiment of horse or foot. The British fleet, so far as Britain was concerned, may have been divided up amongst these forts, or may have been entirely suspended. But it is difficult to make out, owing to the general obscurity, whether the change was made in the interests of coast defense or as a preventative against another Carusius. The new system was known, from the name of the chief assailant, as the Saxon shore, Litus Saxonachium. Whatever the step and whatever the motive, Britain appears for a while to escape the Saxon pillages. During the first years of the fourth century, it enjoyed indeed considerable prosperity, but no golden age lasts long. Before 350, probably in 343, the Emperor Constans had to cross the Channel and drive out the raiders, not Saxons only, but Picts from the north and Scots, Irish from the northwest. This event opens the first act in the fall of Roman Britain, 343 to 383. In 360, further interference was needed, and Lupicinus, Magister Armonium was sent over from Gaul. Probably he effected little. Certainly we read that in 368, all Britain was in evil plight. and Theodosius, father of Theodosius I, Rome's best general at that time was dispatched with large forces. He won a complete success. In 368 he cleared the invading bands out of the south. In 369 he moved north, restoring towns and forts and limits, including presumably Hadrian's Wall. So decisive was his victory that one district, now unfortunately unidentifiable, which he rescued from the Barbarians, was named Valentia in honour of the then Emperor of the West, Valentinian I. For some years after this, Britain disappears from recorded history and may be thought to have enjoyed comparative peace. Such is the account given by ancient writers of the period, circa 343 to 383. It sounds as though things were already about as bad as they could be but a similar tale is told of many other provinces and yet the Empire survived. When Asunicus wrote his Mozilla in 371 he described the Moselle Valley as a rich and fertile and happy countryside. Britain had no Osonius but she can adduce archaeological evidence which is often more valuable than literature. The coins which have been found in Romania-British villas, ill-recorded as they too often are, give us a clue. They suggest that some country houses and farms were destroyed or abandoned as early as 350 or 360, but that more of them remained occupied till about 385 or even later. It is not surprising to read in Arminicus that about 360, Britain was able to export corn regularly to northern Germany and Gaul. The first act, in the fall of Roman Britain, contained trouble and disturbance, no doubt, but few disasters. The second act, 383 to about 410, brought greater evils and of a new kind. In 383, an officer of the British army, by birth a Spaniard, by name Magnus Maximus, proclaimed himself Emperor, crossed with many troops to Gaul and conquered Western Europe. In 387 he seized Italy. In 388 he was overthrown by the legitimate Emperors. Later British tradition of the 6th century asserted that his British troops never returned home and the island was first left defenceless. We cannot verify this tradition, but we have proof. Both that Britain was sore pressed and that the central government tried to help it. Claudian alludes to measures taken by Stilchio, Prime Minister to the then Emperor Ilonius about three hundred ninety five to eight. Archaeological evidence shows that the coast fort of Bavensi Andradia was repaired under Hononius, that a fort was built high on the summit of Peak overhanging the Yorkshire coast halfway between Whitby and Scarborough by an officer of the same period, who is known to have been in Britain a little after 400. These efforts were in vain. Troops, not necessarily legionnaires through Claudio and Ligio, had to be withdrawn for the defence of Italy in 402. Finally, the great raid of barbarians, who crossed the Rhine on the winter's night, which divided 406 and 407, and the subsequent barbarian attack on Rome itself cut Britain off from the Mediterranean. The so-called departure of the Romans speedily followed. This departure did not mean any great departure of persons, Roman or other, from the island. It meant that the central government in Italy now ceased to send out the usual governors and over high officials, and organise the supply of troops. No one went, some persons failed to come. How far the British themselves were responsible for, or even agreeable to, this surrendering of an ancient tie, is, even after the latest inquiries, not very certain. The old idea that Britons and Romans were still two distinct and hostile racial elements has, of course, been long abandoned by all competent inquirers for reasons which the preceding pages will have made evident. But we have the names of three usurpers who tried to seize the imperial crown in Britain 406 to 11 Marcus, Gratian, and Constantine. And it seems that as Constantine went off to seek a throne on the continent, the Britons left to themselves set up a local autonomy for self-protection. Unfortunately, our ancient authorities are less clear than can be wished, especially on the chronology of these events. One thing which seems certain is that Britain did not conceive herself as breaking loose from the Empire, and that in the years to come the Britons considered themselves Romans. If we may believe Gildas, they even appealed for help, to Aetius, the Roman minister, in 446. The attacks of the Saxons had begun before 300, and though at first their brunt fell more heavily on the Gaulish than on the British coasts, they were felt seriously in Britain from about 350 onwards. At first they were the attacks of mere pillages. Later, like the later attacks of the barbarians elsewhere, they became invasions of settlers, when exactly the change took place is unknown, nor is it clear what incident gave the stimulus. It seems probable, however, that the Britons of the early 4th century, harassed by attacks of all kinds, adopted the common device, even more familiar in that age than in any other, a set of thief to catch a thief. The man who set is named in the legends Fortigerian of Kent, the thieves who were set are called Hengest and Horsa. We need not attach much weight to these names, nor can we hope to fix a precise date. But the incident is sufficiently well attested, and sufficiently probable to find acceptance, and it obviously occurred early in the 5th century. It had the natural result. The English called in to protect remained to rule, They formed settlements on the east coast and began the English invasion. But they began it under conditions altogether different from those which attended the barbarian conquests on the continent. The English were more savage and hostile to civilization than most of the continental invaders. On the other hand, they were far less overwhelmingly numerous. The Romeo-British culture was less strong and coherent than the civilization of Roman Gaul. But the Britons themselves, at least those in the hills, were no less ready to fight than the bravest of the continental provincials. The sequel was naturally different in the two regions. The course of the invasion is a matter for English historians. A part of it depends on Romeo-British archaeology. This seems to contradict violently the chronology which the Anglo-Saxon chronicle sets out in suspiciously precise detail. We know that Roxeter was burnt, and we have evidence that the burning occurred soon after, if indeed it was not before, AD 400. We must treat this evidence cautiously, since not a fiftieth part of the site has yet been explored. But at Silchester, which has been all uncovered, the spade has told us, the town was abandoned, not burnt, and as a limit for the date, we find no coins which need be later than about AD 420. The same absence of 5th century coins may be noted on other sites, which have been sufficiently explored to yield trustworthy testimony. It would seem as if the invaders, entering Britain on its eastern and least defensible side, were able like the Romans four centuries earlier, rapidly to sweep over the Lowlands, who were not able to maintain their hold. Thus, for several generations, this region became a debatable land, where neither Romeo-British city's life could safely endure, nor the English take firm hold and settle. In the long confusion, the Romeo-British civilization of the Lowlands perished. The towns, Burnt or abandoned, lay waste and empty. Even Druavermium, Canterbury, presumably the capital of Fortigern, whom the legend mates of a Saxon wife, ceased to exist. And at the healing springs of Aquasulius, Bath, the wild birds built their nests in the marsh which hid the ruins. The country houses and farms perished even more easily. Not one is known in which we can trace English inhabitants succeeding to British. The old native tribal areas and the Roman administrative boundaries were alike lost. Today we have no certain knowledge of any of them. The Roman speech vanished, the Romeo British material civilization, and the house plans and house furniture, hypocasts and mosaics. Even the fashions of brooches and pottery vanished with it. Only the solid agueras of the roads remained still in use, and in these too there were gaps and intervals. All else was but the scattered debris of a ruined world. Meanwhile, the Romanized Britons, in losing the lowlands, lost their towns and all the apparatus of town life. They retired into the hills, to Wales and to the north, the later Strathclyde, and there, in a region where Roman civilization had never established itself in its highest forms, they underwent an intelligible change. The Celtic element, never quite extinct in those hills, and reinforced perhaps by immigration from Ireland, reasserted itself afresh. Gradually, the remnants of Roman civilization were worn down, Celtic speech reappeared, and as a sequel, the late Celtic art was strong enough to pass on an artistic legacy to the Middle Ages. End of section 45